Cool. Merci. Uh, thank you. You may be seated. Her Majesty the Queen versus Gerard Como. Ian A. Blue, QC, Arnold Schwisberg, Mikhail Bernard, and Daria Pergodova for the respondent, Gerard Como. Malcolm Lavoie for the intervener, Artisan Ailes Consulting, Inc. Jennifer Klink and Marion Sandilands for the Intervenor Association of Canadian Distillers operating as Spirits Canada. Robert Martz and Paul Chiswell for the Intervenor Alberta Small Brewers Association. Shay Coulson and Alan L. Doolittle for the Intervenors Liquidity Wines LTD et al. Stephen I. Sofer and Paul Seaman for the Intervenor Canada's National Brewers. Robert W. Staley, Ranjan K. Agarwal, and Jessica M. Stark for the Intervenor Canadian Vintners Association. Kirk Tussaw and Jack Lloyd for the Intervenor Cannabis Culture. Mark Gelowitz and Robert Carson for the Intervenor Montreal Economic Institute. J. Scott Maidment and Samantha Gordon for the Intervenor Federal Express Canada Corporation. Christopher D. Brett and Uwa Kajuska for the Intervenors Canadian Chamber of Commerce et al. Paul J. Bates, Ronald Padolny, Tyler J. Planetta, and Michael Sobkin for the Intervenor Consumers Council of Canada. Mr. Blue. Good morning, Justices. I'm going to deal with uh, certain questions raised primarily by Justice Brown and Justice Rowe yesterday. Uh, the Justice Brown questions are the relationship of Section 121 to Sections 91 and 92. The second one is, what does Section 191 or 121 do that Section 91.2 does not accomplish? And the third question is, what is the effect of the notwithstanding provision in Section 91 on Section 121? The Justice Brown or Justice Rowe questions I'm going to deal with is, why is the Gold Seal decision not correct, and why is it not the law? And secondly, um, I'm going to deal with the question of whether Section 121 contains a policy. My submission will be that it does. In addition. I direct your attention to my condensed book, tab A, which is a two-page uh, summary of our argument. In it, you will find something called a protocol for implementing section 121. I will want to spend some time on that because that is our uh, composite 
of the various factors um, and submissions you have heard about how Section 121 should be uh, um, applied, and I'm going to take you through that. Now, the relationship of Section 121 to Sections 91 and 92, my position and submission is that Section uh, one, uh, the legislation that is made under either Section 91 or 92 is subject to Section 121. Sections 91 and 92 are provisions which confer the ability to make legislation. Section 121 is a specific requirement that I submit is a limit on the powers under Section 91 and 92. It is a limit in my submission just as um, Section 96 um, dealing with the powers of courts and the inability of provinces to legislate courts out of existence is a limit. It is a limit like the Charter is a limit, and it's a limit like Section 35, dealing with First Nations rights is a limit on the powers of um, both the federal parliament and provincial legislatures. Is this not quite similar to what Justice Eddington said in dissent in Gold Seal? Yes, it is. That's exactly the point that Justice Eddington made. Um, now, with respect to what does Section 121 do that Section 91.2 cannot accomplish, um, well, firstly, I would say that um, Section 121 would apply to trade barriers made under federal powers under Section 91.2, the trade and commerce power. For example, the Canadian, old Canadian Wheat Board, or um, any other kind of a trade barrier that um, the federal parliament might create. Secondly, I say that um, Section uh, 121 would apply to an intravirus uh, law made pursuant to Section 92 uh, in a division of powers sense that, uh, um, that has uh, trade restrictive um, uh, features to it. In other words, I say that a law can be intravirus in a division of powers case and can still be contrary to Section 121. Uh, let me give you some examples to bring this down to earth. Uh, there is a case cited by the parties in 1978 here. It was the New Brunswick Court of Appeal's decision in the Queen in Gotro. Now in Gotro, what was at issue was the same Section 134B that is an issue in this case. But in um, the Gotro case, all that was argued was that Section 134B contravened um, the trade and commerce power. What the New Brunswick Court of Appeal held on good authority was that uh, since uh, 134B was an integral part of a valid provincial scheme, even though it did have that effect from a division of powers point of view, it um, was, was um, valid. But nevertheless, uh, we make the argument here, and you can make the argument uh, elsewhere that um, it is a trade barrier and for that reason is contrary to section 121. If that's so, then isn't much of our jurisprudence affirming provincial jurisdiction under section 92 sub 13 effectively per incurium? I'm sorry, per? 
incurium? Um, I submit not. Um, I submit, uh, um, and this will bring me to the protocol, um, that uh, you would have to apply the protocol to it if the allegation is that it is contrary to Section 121. It may well pass, but it might not. So, uh, uh, but, but, all this, but all this jurisprudence of ours, going, going back to Parsons, on Section 92, Sub 13, on your theory, should have also been subjected to scrutiny under 121, and I infer may well have been decided differently. Car cases like Carnation, for example, would have been decided. Well, well, let me ask you, would Carnation have been decided differently if we had taken 121 into account? Or is, or is Carnation per incurium? If uh, Section 121 had been interpreted at that time as barring both tariff and non-tariff trade barriers, yes, in my submission, it would. The problem is that the gold seal case uh, strangled the baby in the cradle by um, uh, saying that uh, Section 121 only applied to provincial tariffs, which was an absurd conclusion because by virtue of the other provisions in Part 8 of the, Con of the British North America Act, 1967, it had been said that the provinces could not impose tariffs. Um, so, um, it, but it, to answer your question, if Section 121 had been interpreted in our submission properly as applying tariff and non-tariff trade barriers, yes, a lot of those cases might have been decided slightly differently. So, in fact, the, the scope of provincial jurisdiction under our constitutional order is clearly in play. Yes. I, I, can't, I can't dispute that. But my submission is that there will be minor, there will be some restrictions on both provincial and federal jurisdiction, but uh, we can live with that. You've imposed restrictions on federal and provincial jurisdiction under the Charter, under Section 35, under other provisions of the Constitution. So Section 121 is of that ilk. Now, um, clearly, um, Section 121 applies to federal powers under Section, 90, uh, under sec section 91. And a good case in point is uh, the very Section 3.1 of the Importation of Intoxicating Liquors Act that has been referred to in my factum and my uh, friend's factum. Um, there's a good example. There, there's a provision that says that um, all liquor by any liquor producer in Canada must be sold to the Provincial Liquor Corporation. Um, that would be the sort of a, a trade barrier that would fall under, under um, uh, Section 121 applied to a federal power. Um, you know, another example of federal, uh, I, I'm old enough to remember, because uh, my practice used to be energy regulatory, the old uh, dividing line uh, at the Ottawa River, um, past which um, Eastern oil refined in refineries in, in, in New Brunswick and Ontario couldn't pass uh, because um, we had to, we had to uh, use Alberta oil in order to um, support the Alberta oil industry. That would be a sort of a federal trade barrier that might be examined. Under our protocol, it may wait, might pass, but it might not. I guess, so, Mr. Blue, I, it's over here. <laughs> Justice Karakatanis. Yes. It just, as you're answering the questions from Justice Brown about how um, a, 
the interpretation you're urging, as opposed to the gold seal interpretation, would have had a dramatic impact on the scope of many of the federal provincial powers in our Constitution. Doesn't that really illustrate the point that you're asking us to really um, interpret this provision in a way that will have a dramatic impact on the, uh, on the on our constitutional balance? Um, uh, Justice Karagatsanis, I submit it, dramatic is not the appropriate adjective. Significant. I, no, I submit that it, it, it will be a, an additional limitation. But when, you, when, you, when I bring you to my protocol, um, I'm going to show you that it's going to be, that, that if that the law has a valid higher purpose and it's not discriminatory, then it probably is, um, a va it is not, it doesn't violate Section 121. But you acknowledge at least that there would have been a different result in many of the cases in which we have looked at the scope of the, uh, of the provincial powers in particular. I acknowledge that. It will at least bring a lot of uncertainty for many years to come. I submit, uh, I submit that it will not. If your decision is clear um, that Section 121 applies to both tariff and non-tariff trade barriers, um, government's uh, lawyers will read it and government um, officials can adjust their programs and um, uh, they will read the protocol that you will um, that you will put in place, and they will adjust their programs to um, to, to meet to meet that protocol. If so, they do not, then yes, um, some 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 programs may need to be trimmed. Rejected by nine of the ten provinces. What should we infer from that, if anything? I submit not much, other than that uh, cooperative federalism, as far as Section 121 goes, has not worked. Um, all those proposals, uh, Justice Cote, assumed the correctness of the Gold Seal interpretation. And uh, they built all sorts of um, additional bells and whistles on it, which were not acceptable to some or all of the provinces. But um, uh, they did not address specifically a version that allowed tariff and non-tariff barriers. Okay. Is there any role left then under your theory that it applies to tariff and non-tariff barriers? Is there any role left for the kinds of uh, cooperation between federal and provincial governments that have resulted in some of the uh, trade uh, agreements that we've seen in the past number of years? Justice Abella, absolutely yes. Again, if you, if, if, this, we'll if, if, if this court holds that it applies to tariff and non-tariff trade barriers, it would behoove provincial officials to read your judgment and see um, that the best way to solve this is to come to some agreement quickly and then solve some of these long-standing um, uh, protectionist uh, issues in our country. But based on what authority? What, what's the jurisdictional basis then for the two levels of government coming together if 121 is Simply, simply that the, 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 the law would be clear that Section 121 would apply to both tariff and non-tariff trade barriers. There would be this protocol for determining whether a particular provincial um, barrier that, uh, that is um, 
valuable to the province would meet that. If it couldn't, then they would negotiate. The Getting, best way to, oh, sorry, no, I'm sorry Chief Justice. Finish your answer. Uh, I just, uh, perhaps I'm jumping ahead, but you do propose a protocol. Yes. Uh, you have a new test, not the gold seal test, but one that is more, uh, more restrictive to um, barriers. Um, and you set it out at C of tab A. Yes, uh, I can go six. through that with you right but now. While, while you do, um, can I, I, I have concerns that we'll be shifting from a situation where things are fairly certain, perhaps not the way you want them to be, but the law is clear. Uh, everybody knows what they have to do uh, to overcome these problems. They negotiate, they cooperate, and so on to something that looks a lot like the Oaks test applied to division of powers, if I can put it that way, uh, where in the end, for example, we have a minimal, we have a rational connection, we have a minimal impairment, um, and we have a lot of weighing and judging and discretion in whether those are solved. And I can tell you can't have tests like that as a judge who's been around for a while without a lot of weighing and discretion. So my concern is whether uh, if we go your approach, we will really be introducing a great deal of uncertainty, perhaps increased litigation, etc., into the law. We know there are myriad trade barriers, everything from things that things that affect trade. They may be environmental measures, they, they can be uh, economic measures, they can be health measures. My concern is that we will be introducing a certain area of uncertainty, uh, a lot of litigation. Uh, maybe in order to avoid that, imposing a huge burden on governments to come up with some agreements quickly so that our society can be regulated in, a, in an orderly fashion. So I wanted to have that concern out there, and you'll take us through your test and answer it, I'm sure. I, I will, Your Honor. I'm sorry, um, Chief Justice. It's all right. Chief Justice, but you, you, you've just done that with uh, court timing for criminal cases. Um, the the, 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 the um, Section 121 is a, is a um, provision that was put in the Constitution to protect ordinary Canadians. It said that you're going to be in a society where there's um, free interprovincial trade. That's going to make the country bigger. The gold seal case um, ended that. Um, and since uh, internal trade barriers had no natural enemies, they, they just multiplied. And that's what we have today. But um, it's time we've gone way past the point where, where that's fair. In order, in order to, for ordinary Canadians, uh, my submission is that we should balance that. Yes, there might be some initial litigation, but the provincial officials that put these barriers in place are capable of reading your judgment, seeing the handwriting on the wall, and, uh, work, work, and, and uh, um, negotiating. Yes, it'll take extra work, but um, that's what it might require to comply with the Constitution. Why do they need to negotiate if there's no barrier? What's left to negotiate? There, if there, um, 
this will, under this protocol, you will not be knocking down all trade barriers. There will be lots left to negotiate in my submission, Justice Abella. <clears throat> uh, let me move on to uh, the third point of uh, Justice uh, Brown, and this is what, what is the effect of the notwithstanding provision in uh, Section um, 91 when it comes to Section 121. And Mr. Justice, or, or Justice Brown, uh, this argument that uh, the notwithstanding words in Section 91 um, um, means that certain federal powers overcome certain other powers has been tried numerous times. I think that last evening we found about um, seven examples over the years. And the notwithstanding phrase in Section 91 simply doesn't have much power. I can take you through a series. British Columbia's position then, as it was expressed yesterday on that? I don't think I recall what British Columbia's position was. Well, I don't want to put words in British Columbia's mouth, but as I understood it, it was that this simply refers to the exclusivity of the jurisdiction that is conferred uh, by Section 91. Yes. Okay. Now, I want to turn to um, Justice Rowe's uh, question of um, why isn't the gold seal interpretation the law? And uh, Justice Rowe, you were right. Um, once gold seal was decided, and once Atlantic Smoke Shops was decided, and once Murphy uh, was decided, because the majority in Murphy, remember, followed the gold seal logic, as did actually Justice Rand when, when push came to shove and he wrote his decision. So uh, um, at, at that point, despite what Mr. Justice Rand said in Murphy, um, I believe that the gold seal decision was, was the law, subject to, subject to reviewing it. But um, in our factum, as you may be aware, um, we adopted the trial judge's decision who adopted our argument that you have to do a purposeful, purposive and a progressive interpretation of Section 121. Forget gold seal, let's go back to um, basics and use the same norms we use to look at other provisions of the Constitution for the Charter. We looked at the wording, we looked at the legislative history, we looked at the scheme of the Act, we looked at the legislative context. Those are the four points that this court has said several times should be looked at in examining a provision of the Constitution. And all these factors in our analysis led us to the same conclusion. And that is that Section 121 applied not just to duties, but to all trade barriers. And I won't refer to any of the opinions of the expert who we called to uh, give evidence at the trial. I'll just refer to the basic historical facts. And the first one is that in uh, Ontario, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, PEI, before Confederation, there were reciprocal free trade statutes that said um, if um, another colony engages in free trade with us, we will engage in free trade with them. We, and those statutes said, in that situation, those goods shall be admitted free 
from duty. The lightest of those statutes was about 1859. What happened? We know the American Civil War happened. We know that as a result of um, certain incidents in British shipyards building ships for the Confederacy, the um, Americans took it out on the British North American colonies. And they started imposing non-tariff trade barriers. Stop and search a wagon of lettuce for six, for six weeks. Was that because uh, in your position of the, um, of the withdrawal from the reciprocity treaty? The withdrawal from the reciprocity treaty was a direct result of the, um, of, of the construction of the uh, Confederate warship Chesapeake, I think it was called, right. in British shipyards. But there was nothing in the reciprocity treaty that didn't allow for non-tariff barriers. You'll agree with me. I don't know that. Well, I have it right in front of me. Article 3. It's got the language of free from duty, and I know you ascribe significance to it. But it just says, all these things shall be admitted into each country, respectively free of duty, lard, coal, tar, that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, the, evi the evidence is that the reciprocity period between 1854 and 1864 was one of the most prosperous periods in Canadian history. There was, there was no recorded complaint about non-tariff trade barriers. Um, but it didn't ban non-tariff barriers. Um, if, if this free from duty language means what you say, it didn't ban non-tariff no. barriers. No. Um, and the rest of it is about drawing fish and stuff like that. I agree, I agree yeah. with you. Okay, I agree with you. I'm just saying non-tariff trade barriers, though, were not a problem under the reciprocity treaty. Well, what evidence is there of that? the historical evidence of our expert, who is a business law professor and business history professor who was studying... What did he draw that from? I mean, it was all gauged on the reciprocity treaty and it doesn't ban non-tariff barriers. The evidence is that... Um, the evidence before you is that uh, the reciprocity, during the reciprocity period, non-tariff trade barriers were not a problem with the United States. Well, but whatever they that means, a, they weren't a problem because they weren't banned. They be, uh, the evidence is they became a problem during the Civil War. <coughs> and uh, I've, I've described them. The, uh, the second thing, the second factor is that in 1860, Britain um, uh, negotiated the cobden chevalier Treaty with France. That was a free trade, total free trade agreement. And that did ban um, non-tariff trade barriers. Um, so um, we know that the draftsmen of the British North America Act, Sir Francis Riley and Lord Carnarvon, had been involved in some of those earlier um, trade negotiations. And the uh, uh, choice of the words in Section 121, shall be, good shall be admitted free, is contrasted with the older statutes shall be committed uh, free from duty. And um, <clears throat> uh, we submit that, that the wording um, uh, indicates that that, is, that should be free from all uh, trade barriers, tariff and non-tariff barriers. The Gold Seal case put words into Section 121 that were not there. And uh, this court has held um, in a couple of cases that you should not 
put words in statutes when you're interpreting them. A fortiori, you should not put words in the Constitution when interpreting it. And the cases that uh, in Wilson versus British Columbia, um, Superintendent of Motor Vehicles, 2015, 3 SCR 300, a paragraph 27, you said that, and you said it earlier in Canada, Information Commissioner versus Canada, Minister of National Defense, 2011, 2 SCR 306. So uh, what the Gold Seal uh, Accord did was add words into Section 121 that just were not there. And the second thing I've made in my factum, I think paragraph 88 to 96, I've um, um, gave you several strong reasons why the gold seal interpretation is incorrect. But essentially, the gold seal case was a temperance decision. You find in Mr. Justice Anglin's decision, he said <coughs> prohibition um, in aid of temperance is not contrary to section 121. Well, he just, what that meant was a section that says goods shall be admitted free means goods shall not be admitted. That's not sensible. But it was done, to, it was, it was done in aid of temperance. It was, the gold seal decision was all about protecting the union government's botched proclamation of the Canada Temperance Act in the province of Alberta. Purpose under your protocol? Uh, it would not be. Okay. So, <clears throat> so the first reason I submit that the Gold Seal decision was not wrong was all that purposeful, progressive analysis, which I set out fully in my factum. The second reason. Uh, is that in 1971, um, no, I'm sorry, the second reason was that um, you, the reason you should give Section 121 the broad interpretation and the gold seal decision is wrong is that Canada is an economic union. Um, the um, Supreme Court, this court, in Lawson and Interior Fruit, uh, Fruit and Vegetables Committee of Direction, 1931, said that um, the intention of the Parliament of Confederation was to create an economic unit of all the provinces of British North America with absolute freedom of trade between its constituent parts. Um, Justice Laskin, as he then was, referred to that and said the same thing in Attorney General of Manitoba versus Manitoba Egg and Poultry Association in 1971. And as you're aware, um, Mr. Justice Laferre said it in Black versus Law Society. Now, the, um, before the Manitoba Egg case got to the um, Supreme Court of Canada, Um, it had been heard by the Manitoba Court of Appeal. And this was um, Justice Dixon, as he then was in the Manitoba Court of Appeal, but um, our, 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 one of the judges I hold the highest became Chief Justice of Canada. And this is, uh, in the Manitoba Court of Appeal, 
he applied Section 121, and for the first time, Section 121 was applied to a non-tariff trade barrier. And uh, if you go to tab six of my condensed book, you will see the extract, and I refer you to specifically paragraphs 40 and 42. And I'm going to read paragraph 40. It's long, uh, but it's, it's, it's so good, it almost um, is, it is very worthy of um, any judge anywhere. He says, quote, the judgment of Rand in Murphy recognized that the present scope of Section 121 is broader than reflected in some of the earlier cases. The purpose of the section is to preserve the free flow of trade between the provinces to the end that Canada may constitute a single indivisible economic unit. Customs duties are one means of impeding trade. Another more modern method can take the form of provincial marketing regulation of such nature as to constitute an insurmountable barrier to trade from other provinces. Clearly, if a province can effectively prohibit the entry of eggs, it can prohibit anything else, any other product of farm or factory, inevitably leading to the disappearance of a truly national economy. Those provinces where products can be produced most cheaply and efficiently would be unable to market all their produce. Consumers in provinces of underproduction would be forced to pay higher prices for the product that they otherwise would or do without the product. And then paragraph 42, um, Justice Dixon said, the broader scope of section 121 does not, in my view, represent a departure from basic principles, but rather a refinement of interpretation in application to the particularized and evolving features and aspects of the matters which the intensive and extensive expansion of life of the country inevitably presents. I have to tell you that with, I share your great respect for uh, former Chief Justice Dixon, but I fear that in paragraph 40, he may have lapsed into what I would call a statement of policy, as in saying this would be good for the country, and therefore I interpret 121 in a certain manner. Is that the method by which this court is to be guided? Well, Justice Rand did no less when he said that if he interpreted uh, Section 121 um, in a certain way, it would, uh, it would frustrate the social and um, economic goals of the country. Um, Justice Laskin in APMA said, um, um, as if through a conjure, things that are trade barriers provincially may not be trade barriers if imposed federally. I mean, this court, with respect, engages in that sort of um, sui generis analysis regularly. So, so the difficulty is, is that, as you acknowledged earlier, the law is gold sealed. <clears throat> the law is gold sealed. Right? That's a majority decision of this court. The majority in Murphy, I mean, it's mostly a trade and commerce power, or division of powers analysis, but the last paragraph affirms gold seal. The Privy Council affirmed gold seal. Rand, Justice Rand's decision was a concurrence. 
Everything since then from this court commenting on it, I think could fairly be characterized as obiter, and sometimes obiter in a dissent. So we have the law, and the question is whether that law is wrong. And I think you've, you've fairly conceded that some of our division of powers jurisprudence did not account for your understanding of section 121. But, but that's, a, but that's a, a legal, that's, that's, that's the analysis. You have to take gold seal as I think stating the law and then say, well, it didn't account for section 121. If it's just a question of this would be good for the country, you have to walk up the hill and, and when it levels out, look for the building with the big clock tower and, and that's where you go. Yes, you are correct. Um, my analysis was the gold seal is the law. The other statements are obiter dicta. Strong obiter dicta, but obiter dicta nonetheless. That is why we did the purposive and progressive analysis to try to persuade Justice LeBlanc, and I'm trying to persuade you that the gold seal decision was so wrong, it was such a It was, it was so wrong that it needs to be set aside and it, be, and it must be allowed to creep into history. Um, the protocol, and, and the reason I say that as well is, um, you heard them, uh, but uh, we, we, we've counted. We went through all the facta. We listened to everybody yesterday. All parties except Ontario, Quebec, Newfoundland and Labrador concede the Reed or the Laskin or uh, the Chief Justice's uh, comments in Richardson as um, an appropriate uh, view of Section 121. Um, those um, <coughs> statements are equivalent to saying uh, that Section 121 applies to tariff and non-tariff trade barriers because they talk about laws that impose restrictions, well, provincial laws can impose tariffs, so they must impose some other sort of trade barriers. So we have 17 odd parties, or more than that, all saying that Section 121 um, needs to be changed to cover both tariff and non-tariff trade barriers. We disagree about the mode of uh, applying it, but um, uh, everyone's telling you it's got to change everyone except Quebec, Ontario, and Newfoundland and Labrador. But, um, and, and that is significant in my submission. It does not binding on you, but it is certainly great context for um, your determination of whether the Gold Seal case is wrong. Um, and my understanding of, of a crucial point as to why it was wrong goes to the draftsman, Mr. Riley. Can, can you kind of encapsulate your point on that? The evidence is that um, um, Mr. Uh, that, um, sorry. The draftsman uh, was a, uh, had been a commercial lawyer. He had worked on several um, trade negotiations at the time Britain was, the, was at the center of the world. It uh, was a free trading nation. It was trying to trade with everybody. It was very knowledgeable about, um, about these issues. 
and he was working with, as I understand it, Sir John A. Macdonald and um, other Canadian officials. And uh, they, um, they came up with Section 121. Can I take you back to the Manitoba Man uh, case and ask you, you, you cited uh, Dixon's, uh, Justice Dixon's decision in Manitoba. Yes, sir. Do we take anything from the fact that he joined with just Chief Justice Laskin in the 1978 egg marketing case? Uh, no, uh, because in the Manitoba case, um, Justice Abella, uh, uh, he was considering uh, provincial restrictions by the government of Manitoba on eggs. In 1978, they were considering um, uh, restrictions resulting from the Agricultural Products Marketing Act and, that, and the, uh, the interlocking legislation. But he didn't disagree with the interpretation of Section 121, did he, that just, uh, Chief Justice Laskin proposed? No, he didn't. Okay. He was in, he was in the majority. Do you mind if I jumped in for one second? I, it's over here. Um, I asked your friend yesterday what the higher purpose was. We were into this whole higher purpose exercise and it plays part of your protocol. Uh, what the higher purpose of, uh, of this impugned law in New Brunswick is. And he said to me, well, primarily it's to make money. That, that was his first honest. He said, I'm going to be, tell you straight, it's a money maker. It's a big money maker for the province. And then he went on and said, that, but you know, there are hospital concerns and alcohol causes problems and so on and so forth. Um, then we heard from two other, pro two other, I guess, territories, Nunavut and Northwest Territories, they said, wait a minute, this isn't about money with us. This is a health problem. This is a serious, serious health problem, social concerns, all kinds of concerns that have nothing to do with money. And I'm just trying to understand, I, Speaking for myself, I understand that as a higher purpose. Uh, can you help me out with your friend's response to what he sees as a higher purpose in the New Brunswick case? Justice Moldaver, um, I submit that um, uh, revenue is not a higher purpose. Nothing that we are uh, suggesting is going to materially affect provincial revenue. In our protocol, in paragraph 100E um, of our factum, we say that regulation in subsidiary matters um, is permitted and does not violate section 121. We picked up that idea from Rand's decision. And we say that all, um, all uh, uh, health, uh, social responsibility, um, regulations about shops and saloons, everything like that. Nothing, not, not, this won't touch any of that. That's all regulation in, in a subsidiary matter within a province. As far as um, revenue is concerned, um, if the province uh, loses revenue this way, um, the people that work in the, uh, in the New Brunswick Department of Finance have other ways to raise revenue to, to, to compensate. If they can't, it all gets um, figured into the mix with federal fiscal provincial well, arrangements. Well, why, why, why isn't alcohol regulation subsidiary regulation within the definition that you just put forward and that therefore would not be subject to 121? Because it's regulation, it doesn't, it, it doesn't affect um, 
uh, so, some people came to me and said, oh, great. Um, if Section 121 is as wide as you say, I can import liquor in and start a liquor store. No, you can't. You, you, would, ha you would have to comply with all provincial laws respecting well, liquor. Well, this is the, the difficulty I'm having with your test, and, and I alluded to it earlier, but you, what you're proposing is not free trade. You're just proposing another regime, uh, and uh, I'd like to understand it because it seems to me, from what you set out in your argument, that um, the uh, first thing a court would have to decide is, is this measure necessary for the achievement of a significant non-protectionist government objective? Uh, I'm not sure why what you've just described wouldn't fall within that. But there would be an argument, and then you have to go on and show it's directed at a that significant concern, that the regulation is rationally demonstrably connected to the objective, and that it's the least impairing. So I think we're, I'm very unclear on what would be in and out under your, under your test, and why, and I'm also unclear as to where that test comes from, and how we draw that out of the language of 121, which, is, I mean, part of your argument is it's plain and simple, apply the words, free. That what you're proposing doesn't seem to me to be free, so I'm I'm all mixed up. Chief Justice, I understand I understand uh, that. Let me try to, to explain it. If you read paragraph 100 of our factum, yeah, paragraph A. and paragraph B. What we initially said in our factum is that any restriction on trade is um, contrary to section 191 or 121, full stop. And if you have a case for um, why it shouldn't be, come to court and we'll deal with it on um, through judicial incrementalism, okay? We also said in paragraph E, uh, subsidiary features are not caught by 121, regulation and subsidiary features. We got that language, as I said, from Justice Rand's uh, statement in, in, in Murphy. And we said in paragraph um, uh, G, uh, 100G, that um, affect uh, rules that are the same for uh, local producers that are applied to out-of-province producers are not caught by Section 121. Uh, we then thought about that and uh, read the factums of uh, my friend, um, Mr. Professor Lavoie, and, and the other factums, and they um, um, emphasized that we had to make this um, interpretation of 121 of tariff and non-tariff barriers work with cooperative federalism. Clearly, there are going to be some federal trade barriers that are, that have, there are good reasons for them that are publicly beneficial. What we wanted to do was set out a protocol that differentiated those types of um, trade barriers from ones that are 
quintessentially protectionist. Um, for example, Nova Scotia is trying to start a wine industry. If Nova Scotia enacted a provision that said that all non-Nova Scotia wine have to be tested for quality and alcohol content at the Agricultural College at Truro, Nova Scotia, before it can go on the shelves, that would be a pretextual requirement. And the protocol would weed that out. If, on the other hand, you looked at Ontario, um, Ontario is concerned about unpasteurized milk. And if it had an unpasteurized milk ban, um, um, there might be good public health and safety reasons for that, and that would not be in violation of Section 121. Each of these situations is going to have to be looked at um, on its facts and um, on evidence. So just to be clear, we're handing policy-making power under this protocol away from elected legislators and the executive and handing it over to judges. I submit you're handing a, a set of protocol to a judge to exercise um, her discretion um, to determine whether uh, Section 121 applies or does not apply. Well, to decide whether it's good and beneficial, in your words. I might think temperance is a good idea. You didn't think it was a good idea, but now I get to decide. But you have politicians making the same, the same sort of decision. And they're accountable by democratic franchise to the public. Yeah, but the Constitution is here. The Constitution has Section 121 in it to but be it a focal like point for people's rights. And, and um, the people have no voice in the, in the type of negotiations that um, politicians engage in over trade barriers. So, but they do have a voice before a cold, the, the cold impartiality of a court of justice. Your premise is on that gold seal is wrong. You start there and then you say, but there are certain realities that have occurred over the years that we should take into account in, in kind of refining it a little bit so that we don't just go back to everything goes. That, that's correct. That, that's, my, that, that's the goal yeah. of the protocol, Justice Moldaver. But could, and Mr. Lavoie, one of his concerns, though, with your protocol, I would have thought we'll hear from him, though, is that you're going to get the, the courts into a hornet's nest in these things, like occurs in the United States and, to a lesser extent, Australia and so on. And he would like to see, if I understand him correctly, a cleaner approach. Do you understand that? Yes. All right. Now, in terms of a cleaner approach, can you just help me out and then I'm going to leave you alone because I like to know how things are going to work out on the ground. Is it your idea that a restaurateur in New Brunswick could, for example, stock his or her restaurant, decide to buy all the wine and booze and everything from British Columbia, have it transported into New Brunswick and, and, and use that in the restaurant and like thousands of restaurateurs could do the same thing um, and what regulation would there be on this, or could the province of New Brunswick regulate this at all, or is it just wide open? I just don't know how this is going to work. Well, in, in, the, in the BC case, any shipment of wine from a BC winery to anyone, they have to provide documentation to the BC Liquor Distribution Bank 
for taxation purposes. And um, um, so the revenue, the way it would work is the revenue would go to the British Columbia government uh, rather than in the example you've chosen than to the, than to the New Brunswick government. But in terms of New Brunswick um, um, law, um, the restaurant would have to treat the BC wine in the same way he treats any other, any other wine. Which is how? Pardon me? Uh, what do you mean? I'm sorry, I don't understand. Well, lock it in a secure container, um, sell it uh, glasses of certain sizes, that sort of thing. Don't you think that uh, in today's world with uh, the possibility to do a lot of shopping on internet, that uh, would be very easy for somebody in New Brunswick, for instance, who always buy uh, from another province, then depriving the province, New Brunswick, from uh, important or significant revenues? What is the impact of this new world in which we are? That yeah, internet yes, shopping? Uh, we, we see, we see mail, mail order shipments of wine as a growth industry for wineries. There would be a tremendous opportunity for BC wineries, Ontario wineries, Nova Scotia wineries. If your local wineries can't compete, tell them to make better wine. Or better prices. That's right. It, uh, that's, that's could be, be nothing but good for, for, for the wine industry or any agricultural industry or any um, other industry in which there are restrictions. Yeah, there would be maybe other provinces who are, uh, you know, who would like to have some control over the, uh, the alcohol in their province. Uh, health issues, safety issues, uh, industry protection as well. I mean, what do, you, what do you call protectionist measures? I mean, it can vary from one province to the other. So uh, that would all disappear. Don't you uh, think? Uh, I, Justice Wagner, I submit um, health laws will, uh, will not be touched, uh, safety laws will not be touched. They will still be, they will still be um, in force. None of this changes any of that. That's all valid provincial regulation of, of, um, uh, of, uh, of, in the case of liquor, in a subsidiary matter. The liquor is in the province, it's subject to uh, provincial rules. The province could tax it. They could demand BC to send the same documentation to it. It could impose its own tax. For, in, for instance, in Quebec, for, I knew that at one point in time there was a minimum price for the beer. Uh, so that, that would also go, I mean, uh, but it was, it was uh, enacted for uh, health issues and to make sure that, uh, you know, there was no uh, dumping also from outside. And there were some valid considerations in those days, so that would all disappear. Justice, Justice Wagner, though, uh, uh, this applies to Canada. No one's going, no one, no one's going to, uh, yes, right now, Quebec has the lowest priced beer. That's why Mr. Um, Como went across the Restigouche River to buy it. And my people in here in Ottawa go across to the, uh, uh, to buy it. So we're told. <laughs> <laughs> Justices, uh, I've got uh, about seven minutes left. I'd like to, I just would like to take you through the protocol and make the points about it that I want to, and then I want to talk briefly about Section 134. Um, with respect to A, B, and C, um, 
the, the issue of whether a measure is truly necessary for the achievement of a, a protectionist or higher purpose, we submit that um, the onus on the government to prove that uh, must be a heavy one. And um, you, you can have some provincial official coming into court and giving an incantation, this serves a higher purpose. There must be evidence of um, social need for the province. Uh, um, words alone will not, will not suffice. Um, the three uh, tests, four tests at the, at the, at the bottom are um, are that um, in, in doing the analysis of, a, of an allegedly higher purpose, um, you would have to ask, um, is the non-protectionist part of that policy directed to a significant um, aspect of that higher purpose? Is it necessary for the higher purpose? Um, is it ra you know, rationally um, and, and demonstrably connected to that purpose? And uh, is, is, is it the least intrusive one to interprovincial um, inter trade that there is, and does it have a reasonable impact? Those, those are fairly standard um, tests in my submission. And I, I submit that those tests respect the, respect the um, architecture of the Constitution. It, it allows provinces and the federal government to have um, publicly important programs that might restrict trade in some instances, marketing boards might be an example, um, uh, but at the same time it, it would eliminate um, um, unnecessary barriers to trade that are there for only protectionist purposes. I submit that it, that it meets um, um, uh, the requirement that um, legislation that incidentally um, affects uh, the flow of goods and services that um, Chief Justice, you referred to in Richardson, but it, 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 just, it just puts some, some limits on it. I, I submit that you strict and convincing proof is necessary. Is it fair to say, and I don't want to cut too much into your time, I know it's short, that this is the fruition of the germ of the idea planted by Justice Rand in Murphy? Yes. Now, one, one other point I... Uh, I Proportionality assessments entail value judgments? Yes. Okay. Everything a trial judge does entails value judgments. Proportionality assessments, too. I, and, I mean, look, I understand this. I, I get annoyed when I go to the LCBO and they've got 18 inches dedicated of to BC wine and whole shelving unit dedicated to Eastern European wines. But, but, but those are my value judgments that, 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 that flow from that. But other people may have other value judgments. I would have thought we want to try and confine that. But I guess not. Well, the higher purpose was stated by the Chief Justice in Richardson um, in connection with Section 6 of the Charter. And it, it's a concept we've all tried to come up with, and it's, it's hard to define. And 
I, I submit that that's why it's necessary to, to um, have it uh, on a fact-specific basis. Well, can I just take, I'm, I'm not saying that that test, which I thought I was just applying to settle law, but um, I, I'm not saying it couldn't be improved, but it has been read as being a very generous test uh, to provinces who want to regulate in ways that might impact interprovincial trade. And with the result that it's not created, as far as I can see, much difficulty. Everybody just says you can do it. What you seem to be proposing is a, is a, is a narrower, more restrictive test on, on how, uh, what provinces, how they can regulate um, matters uh, that may impinge on interprovincial traits. So um, we have to be persuaded, A, that the test we have isn't working, that there should be a narrower test let's call it Murphy 2, and uh, why should we make this change, and what gives us the power to do it at this point? Where is the need? I mean, your whole argument was based on, uh, as I perceived it, or at least the trial judge, originalist thinking, this is what the fathers of, did the fathers of in Confederation intend Murphy 2, as you set it out? I mean, what I have some trouble with the legitimacy of, of us weighing in now. A, we've had a test that doesn't seem to have created a lot of difficulty, interpreted as it has been. Why should we move to something else? And where is the foundation, the justification for us doing so as a court at a time when governments are busy negotiating these matters? Well, um I submit it's always proper for the court to interpret the Constitution when an issue was brought before it. But my, my uh, position on Section 121 is that it, and this is all that Judge LeBlanc said, it applies to tariff and non-tariff trade barriers. Once you have that rule, then the question is, how do you apply it given the reality that we have a federal system? And what this protocol does it's not an interpretation of Section 121. It's a, it's a practical, expedient way of applying Section 121 using the ideas of Supreme Court Judges Rand, Laskin, Chief, yourself, Chief Justice, and um, a lot of other legal minds that have contributed to these factors. Uh, my time is about up. And uh, uh, I just wanted to say, Chief Justice, on behalf of all counsel, thank you for your service, your leadership and courage has been um, something that has given us all um, energy and hope. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mr. Lavoie. Chief Justice, Justices, Artisan Ailes intervenes in this appeal in order to propose a test for assessing non-tariff trade barriers under Section 121. The test is laid out on page one of our factum. I believe this test can address many of the problems this court has been grappling with over the past couple of days. In particular, our proposed test is consistent 
with the vast majority of this court's division of powers jurisprudence. The only big difference arises between, the only big difference between the proposed test and, uh, yeah. I think you've just implicitly said, which I guess is kind of obvious anyway, that your interpretation of section 121 does affect the division of powers. It arrives at different conclusions from section 91 and 92, but it, it is a distinct inquiry. Um, and I think that's appropriate because the purpose of section 121 is distinct from the division of powers. The division of powers are about uh, grants of authority that are interpreted in a generous and flexible manner. This is a restriction on government authority with a particular purpose related to restraining discriminatory protectionism in relation to trade and goods. This would undoubtedly run contrary to the doctrine of exhaustiveness then. Like other uh, constitutional provisions that restrict government authority, like Section 96 for instance, um, it would restrain what governments could otherwise do in the absence of this express constitutional restriction on government powers. So li like, like these other restrictions on government power, uh, yes, it would be an exception to exhaustiveness. Um, as I was saying, the, the big difference between the results one might arrive at under the division of powers and the result one would arrive at under our proposed test arises with respect to measures that actually single out out-of-province goods for special burdens. These types of measures are at the heart of what Section 121 seeks to preclude. And accordingly, under our test, they're made subject to a necessity test uh, that would not be part of the division of powers analysis. Um, and to give an example in response to Justice Brown's question, I think Preferential marketing rules for beer and wine produced in province as, as, as compared with beer and wine produced outside the province uh, might be upheld under the division of powers uh, but would be subject to a necessity test uh, under our proposed test which, which might arrive at a different conclusion. Uh, so there is a distinction, um, I think appropriately, uh, in light of the distinct purpose. Uh, yeah. 21, as you understand it, would affect, would potentially affect a stripping of provincial jurisdiction over intra-provincial trade? I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it that way. We, we'd be talking about measures that... Uh, well, something that would pass muster under 92.13 then has to go through your test or Mr. Blue's proportionality test. Yeah, I mean, there would be uh, some effects on what a province could otherwise do, which again is appropriate in light of the fact that this is a, an express constitutional uh, restriction. Okay. No, it's, that's it's, fine. I understand. Yeah. I understand okay, that. I think okay. we're on the same page, Justice Brown. Um, as I was saying, uh, that this test aims to be true to the text and purpose of Section 121 by restricting acts of discriminatory protectionism in relation to trade and goods. Um, this is based on the understanding that Section 121 restricts not only tariffs, but also non-tariff measures whose protectionist character makes them analogous uh, to tariffs. And that's what the two branches of the test are meant to get at. The first branch of the test deals with regulatory measures that draw distinctions directly or indirectly related to province of origin. Um, such measures are prima facie suspect on a purpose of interpretation of Section 121. Um, if a measure singles out out-of-province goods for special burdens, the odds that it reflects protectionism in its essence and purpose are high. 
But importantly, this is a presumption that governments uh, can rebut if they can demonstrate that the measure is necessary to achieve an important non-protectionist objective. This justification test serves an important function um, in, in ensuring uh, that Section 121 will never prevent a government from pursuing important non-protectionist policy objectives. I just wanted to ask you about that, if I may, and I mm -hmm. know your time is limited, but how do we define that? It's easy when you see it, maybe. I see it in Nunavut, I see it in territories and so on, but how do you know it? How, what are the parameters of this test? That's what I'm having trouble with. Thank you, Justice Moldaver. Um, I think there, there's a balance to be struck here uh, between determinacy on the one hand and the need for an open-ended test that can address a wide range of barriers. Um, I, I concede that the, the concept of an important non-protectionist uh, purpose is somewhat open-ended. Um, that said, for the most part, we know it when we see it. And there's that important caveat that the purpose itself can't be protectionist. Um, so there, there are examples one could give, certainly, uh, a prohibition on alcohol that doesn't discriminate based on where the alcohol is from, that serves an important public health objective, would qualify. And then the only question for the, for the, for the court would be, uh, is this actually necessary to achieve that objective? Uh, and, that, and that only applies if there's a discriminatory measure. Um, so there, there isn't quite the same open-ended balancing of policy objectives, say balancing the, the, the benefits of the measure against the burdens of the measure. That's kept out of the test. Um, there's an element of value analysis that's part of it, but it's mostly at that threshold question of what constitutes a valid purpose. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that brings us to Ms. Klink. Good morning, Justices. Spirits Canada is not proposing that this court adopt the trial judge's approach. Spirits Canada recognizes many of the concerns raised by the Attorneys General. Spirits Canada proposes an interpretation of Section 121 that gives the provision meaning without leading to extreme outcomes. In my submission, the purpose of Section 121 is to prohibit measures that advantage the goods of one province to the disadvantage and at the cost of those of another. On this approach, Section 121 does not capture all barriers to trade. Many measures that burden or increase the cost of trade will be permissible for two reasons. First, Section 121 will only be at issue where a provincial or federal measure is discriminatory or protectionist in its purpose or effects. Second, even then it will remain open to governments to justify measures that are prima facie inconsistent with Section 121 by invoking a compelling public policy objective that is not in itself discriminatory or protectionist. In my submissions, I will briefly address three points. First, how the unwritten constitutional principles of federalism, democracy, and constitutionalism inform the interpretation of Section 121. Second, why Section 121 is not a division of powers provision. Third, why Section 121 must be concerned with both purpose and effects. First, Spirits Canada's interpretation of Section 121 is supported by the principles of federalism, democracy, and constitutionalism. An interpretation of Section 121 as concerned with measures that advantage the goods of one province at the expense of those of another is consistent with federalism. It promotes unity while allowing for diversity among provincial policies. It is also consistent with democracy. It allows for provincial elected representatives to respond to local preferences and needs. At the same time, 
it recognizes that constitutions operate to protect important interests that may not be adequately represented in the democratic process, here, out of province and national interests. These fundamental considerations animate the approach to Section 92 in Australia and to the Dormant Commerce Clause in the United States. And this was explained by the Australian High Court in Betfair, which I won't take the court to, but it's reproduced at tab 11 of our condensed book at paragraphs 34 and 35. To this, I would add a comment on uncertainty. Constitutional interpretation must be based on fundamental and long-term considerations. Any time this court revisits its precedents, there is a period of adjustment, as was the case with Carter, Bedford, and many indigenous rights cases. And this is indeed the court's role. You've made reference to federalism, democracy, and the like. Those are the kind of, kind of conceptual frameworks that are used in what is sometimes called structural argumentation, which took place, for example, in the secession reference or the PEI reference for um, uh, remuneration of judges. They were used when there was no provision in the Constitution itself to divine the, the, the rules that would exist in the absence of a specific provision. Is that the form of approach, the form of analysis we use when we have an express provision? So uh, according to the secession reference, these unwritten constitutional principles are used to interpret the text. And the task for this court, just as it was for the High Court of Australia in Colby Whitfield, is to interpret the unexpressed. Section 121 is not clear by its terms. It requires interpretation. So I'll continue just to quickly address the second very important point, that Section 121 is not a division of powers provision. The point has been made before, but it's important to emphasize that Section 121 is a limit on legislative authority. It is not a, a legislative authority conferring provision like Sections 91 and 92. And that's why all of the jurisprudence on Sections 91 and 92 that allow for a dominant tide where, um, there's where interpreting one of the provisions granting authority as a limit on the authority of the other level of government has been avoided to the extent possible. A considerable degree of overlap is allowed in division of powers cases, but that's not the case in cases dealing with limiting provisions. And I think that dis once that distinction is kept clearly in mind, the interpretation of Section 121 can serve its purpose instead of being shoehorned into um, doctrines that are foreign to its object. So the third and final point I would like to make is that in order to effectively achieve its purpose of curtailing discriminatory and protectionist measures, Section 121 must be concerned with both purpose and effects. Examining both pur purpose and effects is familiar in charter jurisprudence. Um, in this court's decision in the trial lawyer's case, the violation of Section 96 was because court hearing fees had um, the effect of denying access to the superior courts, not their purpose. And this is the approach taken in Australia, the United States, and the European Union and under the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Maybe I'm, excuse me, maybe I'm not understanding your, your test properly because you say that an infringement by effect could be justified with respect to a compelling public policy objective that is not protectionist. Do I understand your? That's, so the, the two Why don't we then just go straight to asking whether there's a protectionist purpose here and, and we don't need to worry about effects? So the first stage of the, well, first of all, Spirits Canada is not proposing a, a strict test. There are many models. There are models right. in both other jurisdictions and internationally that can inform this court's interpretation in light of constitutional principles. Um, but in Spirits Canada's submission, the first stage looks to whether there is a discriminatory purpose or effect to the, the measure. And then at the justification stage, 
there's a wide range of valid, compelling public policy objectives that can be invoked to justify measures that have, say, discriminatory effects. The only type of objective that can't be used to justify a discriminatory effect is a protectionist or discriminatory objective in itself. So that's the kind of, it's just to qualify the nature of objectives that can be invoked at the justification stage. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Mr. Martz. Bonjour, good morning. The submissions of the Alberta Small Brewer Association come from the perspective of small brewers, independent brewers in Alberta, who operate in Canada's most open alcohol market and whose efforts to sell their products in other provinces have been stymied by non-tariff barriers. The Alberta Small Brewers Association generally agrees with the task proposed by the Canadian distillers and I propose to address three brief points in my submissions this morning. The first is that Section 121 applies to Parliament. The second is that the RAND and essence and purpose test and tests to flow from it should consider both purpose and effect. And third is that the Section 21 should operate to prevent systemic, systemic discrimination by liquor monopolies on the basis of product origin. The uh, parties already this morning have touched on the notwithstanding issue that Justice Brown raised yesterday, and I propose to just bear, very briefly touch on that and to note that this court has considered the impact of the notwithstanding uh, provision in Section 91 in the context of Section 121 and the sections around it. In re-exported natural gas tax in 1982, this court uh, adopting uh, largely a decision from uh, 1929 noted that it cannot be maintained that it is competent to the Dominion in exercise of Section 91 powers to legislate in disregard of the provisions of sections 102 to 126. And I'd also just point uh, the justices to uh, Murphy in Justice Cartwright's concurrence. He, he actually talks about the relationship between 91 and 121, and he notes that it seems clear that it would appear prima facie to fall within the power of Parliament under the opening words of section 91 of the BNA, uh, and to be valid unless it contravenes section 121 of the Act. So in my submission, uh, this court has considered the relationship between them, and I think as you've heard already, 121 can qualify the exercise of powers under Section 91. I'll now move on to the issue of purpose and effects. Uh, the small brewers submit that the purpose and effects should both be considered in, in considering any test under Section 121. And we first point to the analysis that Justice Rand undertook in the paragraph subsequent to his articulation of the essence and purpose test. In the paragraphs that followed his articulation of that test, he was discussing the purpose and effect of the Wheat Act, and he noted that the scheme of the Wheat Act is primarily to benefit producers of wheat in areas to which the product can now be said to be indigenous, then went on to say its effect is not to reduce the quantity of either foreign or interprovincial trade. He then concluded that paragraph, which is at page 642, by noting the act operates on the individual by keeping him in effect in a queue, but the orderly flow of products proceeds unabated. So in our submission, the essence aspect of essence and purpose contemplates effects. And we say that this is an appropriate uh, theme to pick up in any, in any uh, decision to follow from the RAND test. And we rely on this court's comments in, in Big M, which were uh, referred to in, in Richardson, 
uh, noting that the purpose and effect respectively in the sense of a legislation's object and its ultimate impact are clearly linked if not indivisible. And we would say that would apply to protectionist analyses under section 121. The final point that the small brewers wish to make is uh, refer somewhat to some of Justice Brown's questions yesterday about uh, instances where 121 might be engaged uh, where there was a valid exercise of provincial under section 92. In our submission, an instance could arise in terms of discriminatory, uh, systemic discrimination against product origin by a liquor monopoly. In every province but Alberta, liquor monopolies and the liquor distribution boards make the ultimate decision as to what products may be sold in the province. In a and that, in our submission, is a valid uh, exercise of provincial power under section 92 as, as the situation is set up currently. In situations where those liquor boards engage in systemic discrimination against out-of-province products, out-of-province beer, that would be a situation where Section 121 might be engaged to prevent these protectionist policies. The Alberta small brewers uh, seek equitable access to other provincial markets under Section 121, and in our submission, Section 121 gives the small brewers of Alberta a constitutional right to do so. Thank you for your time. Ms. Mr. Coulson. As intimated by Justice Brown in an earlier question, with respect to the access of BC wine in Ontario stores, uh, there is currently no national market for liquor in Canada. As a result, small and boutique producers of Canadian wines find themselves shackled to the limits of their physical location within their province. They cannot access a national market, and thus they cannot grow um, beyond a small regional industry. So the question then for the wineries is, does 121 have anything to say about that? Um, we urge the court to adopt an incremental approach if it does choose to um, go beyond gold seal. Um, but that incremental approach should be cautious. And the court has a choice, uh, as Chief Justice McLaughlin indicated, as to how much discretion to afford future judges. So in our submission, there's sort of three general categories if the court goes beyond gold seal. The first is the one proposed by British Columbia, a sole purpose type test. The second is a purpose and effects test with a highly deferential test for justification, which is the test that we adopt and the test that Spirits Canada and others adopt. And the third is the respondents' more broad uh, framework for Section 121. So uh, a province elects a government that is quite socialist, quite statist in its approach, and for reasons of uh, seeking to maintain employment within its boundaries, it's democratically elected, they've campaigned on their platform, this is, this is what we're going to do. People vote for them, and the judges say, no, you can't do that. On our test, that would be legitimate, and that was a question I, wanted, I was going to get to. I think that's your Newfoundland beer producer's um, example. If the purpose of a provision is to um, legitimately deal with a low employment uh, situation or take a, a status-type approach, uh, then it would be uh, legitimate. Um, so the only question then is, on our test, first, is there an outright prohibition? Um, and if there is an outright prohibition, is the reason for that necessary um, for a legitimate provincial purpose? So the higher purpose in that case would be 
protecting jobs within the province. And we do recognize that there, is, there would still be some sort of balancing. It's unavoidable to deal with a balancing if the test is expanded. It's just the question as how far does that balancing go? Um, so we know from Air Canada and Goutreau that provisions like Section 134 are intravirus the province. And we also know that under the trade and commerce power, the federal government has amended the Importation of Intoxicating Liquors Act to remove the barriers to personal importation and shipping of liquor. So in our submission, 121 goes further than what those two things deal with. Um, and it's the question of limits again. So 134, what is that about? Well, by prohibiting possession of imported liquor, the section creates a regional market for alcohol to the exclusion of a national market. That purpose is the core of the provision. And New Brunswick has admitted that the provision in its case um, is largely about provincial income. And that's not true, of course, of Nunavut, which has a legitimate purpose in an outright prohibition, likely. This means the core and, and, or essence of the provision is to generate income by creating a regional market to the exclusion of a national market. So these purposes are intravirous the province, but they may be limited by 121 if they serve unjustifiable protectionist objectives, which we say they do. <clears throat> so I also want to answer Justice Rowe's question uh, yesterday about policy, whether this is an incorporation of policy into Section 121. Uh, in our submission, 121 is not an entrenchment of property rights. That's not its purpose. But there is a policy objective to 121, and it's best understood through the context of Chief Justice McLaughlin's words in her dissent in Richardson about the architecture of the Constitution, which is a historical compromise between regional interests and the vision of an economic un uh, union. That's the purpose or policy of 121. So that means in our submission that there must be a, a justification test incorporated into 121 because otherwise um, it, there would be no balancing. It can't be an absolute free market. So section 121 is a provision that is intended to create a national common market in balance with appropriate regional prote or protections for regional interests. So Section 121 addresses protectionism, but doesn't outright prevent it or incorporate an absolute free trade provision. Um, and that may be our one modification to VC's test, which is actually even more deferential. Is it really necessary to say that the purpose has to be non-protectionist? What if the protectionist purpose is to protect jobs or, in the case of Nunavut, a social health purpose? That may be um, legitimate. Thank you. Um, we'll hear Mr. Sofer before the break. Prohibition was not a good thing for the beer industry. First, because of the obvious, and second, because it led the narrow interpretation of Section 121 in Gould Seal. To deal with the questions from Justice Moldaber and Justice Brown, in 1921, prohibition may have been a higher purpose. It may be a higher purpose today in the Northwest Territories and in none of it. Looked at in that light as a prohibition decision, Gould Seal might actually be correctly decided, but rather its reasonings might be unduly narrow and perhaps even mere obiter. Canada's National Brewers is asking this court to take the 96-year 
benefit of the history of how provisions like this are dealt with in the United States, how they are dealt with in Australia, to take the benefit of this court's subsequent jurisprudence, and most importantly, to apply the framework adopted by this court in Sparrow when dealing with Section 35, a, a provision which, like Section 121, is a restriction on the activities of government, a provision that was referred to by Professor Hogg as a small bill of rights. In my remaining time, I want to focus on effects. Most importantly, that effects have to be taken into account in determining whether or not the provision violates Section 121. The test put forward by Justice Rand and Murphy was whether a good is free from impediment when transversing a provincial boundary. CMB describes Section 121 as an insurance policy against such impediments. But even using the words that this court has used, if Section 21 is a pillar to the accomplishment of achieving an economic union, both purpose and effects have to be taken into account. It is at least noteworthy and perhaps persuasive that purpose and effects are considered in the United States and in Australia and in trade agreements when interpreting similar provisions. It's at least persuasive that when considering analogous provisions of the Charter, Section 15 and Section 6, purpose and effects are taken into account. And yesterday, as this court noted, even in determining pith and substance, purpose and effect are taken into account in looking for colorability, when in fact the effects demonstrate that a purpose is indeed wrongful. My clients refer to the discrimination test as beer is beer is beer. And beer, whether external from the province or internal province, should be treated the same way. Transitioning to a test applicable to everyone else, it is our submission that a provincial measure is discriminatory and prima facie violates Section 121 if its purpose or its effect is to treat intra-provincial goods more favorably than like, substitutable, or directly competitive extra-provincial goods. Justice Brown, I'd like to deal with effects as well in giving you an example for when a measure might satisfy 92 but violate Section 121. And the example I'm going to use is something I know nothing about, but was given by British Columbia yesterday, and snow tire tread with. Suppose Ontario invokes a provision on snow tire tread with that everyone in the province has to follow. Suppose then that Manitoba and Quebec come forward before this court or a lower court and say, everyone else has a different tread. It makes no sense for Ontario to have the tread that it has and in fact, it significantly impedes interprovincial trade because trucks can't go from the standard of trade it's using in Manitoba or Quebec into Ontario. In our view, if they could satisfy the court that there is a significant impediment to interprovincial trade, it would satisfy the first part of the test and be discriminatory. That would go to the second part of the test and justification. Ontario would say its purpose is road safety, and that would be a higher purpose. But then we would look at the means that were chosen. We would look at the weather. We would look at the road patterns. We would see, indeed, is such a test for road tread tests for snow tires, is it actually necessary to accomplish its purpose? In or admiralty matters, there's someone who sits beside the judge who's called a surveyor. 
is quite knowledgeable about the operation of vessels. Am I to have sitting beside me on such matters an economist? What you'll have sitting beside you is the council for the three provinces who will be making submissions after expert Evans had done at lower courts. I th think this court and some of the submissions have referred to almost a parade of horribles of an, an adopting of Pandora's box, if indeed we go the way that we are advocating. It's important to remember that when Pandora's box was closed, what was left was hope. And when one looks at the interprovincial trade barriers today, a purposeful explanation and interpretation of Section 121 is the best hope that the tension of the framers of the Fathers of Confederation will be followed, who when they sat here in 1867 were likely served beer by my clients. Thank you very much. The court will rise for its morning recess. Mr. Staley. Thank you. Uh, Chief Justice, uh, Justices, on behalf of the Canadian Vintners Association, I intend to make submissions today on the subject of stare decisis. And the CVA makes two submissions before you. The first is that the trial judge was entitled to reconsider Gold Seal, as he did. And the second is whether or not you agree he was entitled to do that, it's open to this court to reconsider and overturn Gold Seal for reasons that have been articulated on behalf of the respondent and some of the other interveners. So I want to start with the subject of vertical stare decisis. And in Bedford and subsequently in Carter, this court set out the test for determining whether an exception to the principle of vertical stare decisis exists. And one branch of that test is whether there is a change in the circumstances or evidence that fundamentally shifts the parameters of the debate. And I want to address each element of that test, uh, starting with a change in evidence. And in defending the charges against him, Mr. Como offered new historical evidence regarding the intention of the drafters of the Constitution. I don't intend to get into it, but I note that in paragraphs 178 to 183 of the trial decision, the, just, the, the trial judge reviewed that evidence in some detail. And my respectful submission to you is that that new evidence, which included the circumstances surrounding the drafting of the relevant section and some of the predecessor statutes, falls within the one of the two exceptions, which is a change in evidence that allows the court to reconsider its decision. I submit to you that that evidence meets the Carter and Bedford threshold. 
The other thing that uh, I want to just bring to your attention is that there clearly has been a change in the social and legislative matrix uh, that satisfies the Carter and Bedford tests. And in our factum, uh, starting, I guess, starting in paragraph 14, but set out more in more detail in paragraph uh, 16, we set out the circumstances that we say constitute sort of the changes in a social legislative matrix. And as was noted by Justice Cote in, in, in a question that she put this morning, we live today in the era of Amazon and in the era of e-commerce. We also live in a country where the laws of some provinces, and for example, Quebec, do not allow a resident of that province to order wine online from a BC winery and have that wine shipped into the province of Quebec. And if you think about how the uh, Section 121 has been interpreted, uh, admitted free or admitted free with, with, uh, without duties uh, is a long way from not being admitted at all as long as the wine crosses a provincial boundary, which is the circumstance in relation to a number of the provinces that exist today. And the, the, the changes in circumstance that are relevant in our submission uh, are set out in paragraph 16 of our factum. And I say to you simply that, that, that living in an era of, of e-commerce, living in modern era where, where there is an expectation that people should be able to purchase goods across provinces, not to suggest that those goods should be entirely free from taxes that might be applied within the receiving province generally, but not being permitted to cross provincial barters at all, and my respectful submission is fault calls within one of the branches of the uh, test that's been set out in Carter and in Bedford. And for both of the reasons I've articulated, it's our respectful submission that the trial judge was entitled to revisit Gold Seal as he did. I don't have the time available to me to, uh, to uh, in any detail, deal with the issue of, of horizontal uh, star eight decisis. But my submission to you very simply, and it's set out in our factum, is whether or not you agree that the trial judge uh, was appropriate for him to revisit Gold Seal as he did. It's appropriate for this court to revisit it. And, and in particular, this goes to a question that uh, Justice Brown asked yesterday. This court acknowledged that in particular, in the context of constitutional cases, the principle of stare decisis is subordinate to the Constitution and cannot require a court to uphold a law that is unconstitutional. And I say to you, whether we're talking about the charter context or talking about the interpretation of other sections of the Constitution, in my respectful submission, that principle applies. So I leave the, the balance of my submission, my fact, but thank you, uh, Chief Justice and Justice. Thank you very much, Mr. Staley. Mr. Tussaud. Chief Justice, Justices, thank you for the opportunity to make submissions on behalf of cannabis culture and other cannabis dispensaries. Canada is on the verge of making fundamental changes to our approach to cannabis, legalizing production and sale to recreational consumers, and this court's decision may have significant effect on this emergent <clears throat> industry. Cannabis is uniquely positioned right now because it is currently lawful for commercial entities to produce and sell directly via mail order to medical consumers. This regulatory regime operates wholly within the federal criminal law jurisdiction and currently permits over 200,000 Canadians to obtain cannabis direct from producers without regard to the province or territorial location of either the consumer or the producer. 
The proposed Cannabis Act also sets out an exemption regime and appears to also be an exercise of the criminal law power. It will exempt from the offense provisions in the Act the licensed production of cannabis and its sale through provincial or territorial retail regulations or in jurisdictions that do not adopt such regulations direct to consumer in the same way as medical cannabis is now lawfully sold. <clears throat> Most provinces and territories have now signaled their general approach to retail distribution. Most appear to be tracking the way alcohol is regulated. Several will create provincial monopolies over retail sales, and it is clear in some cases, notably Ontario and Quebec, and reasonable to assume in others that these monopolies will function in the same way or more restrictively than current liquor monopolies. Cannabis dispensaries such as cannabis culture operate outside of any regulatory frameworks with some municipal exceptions and serve medical and sometimes recreational consumers. They obtain their products from a wide variety of unlicensed producers and processors and do not discriminate based on province of origin. As a result, cannabis dispensaries carry a much wider array of products than federal licensed producers, service more consumers, and have been described as the Federal Court of Canada as lying at the heart of access to medical cannabis. Cannabis culture is deeply concerned that proposed provincial monopolies over cannabis will undermine the emergence of the industry and the federal purpose of eliminating the illicit cannabis market. Indeed, as we speak this morning, a cannabis dispensary just down the street is being raided and Canadians arrested by police in an attempt to pave the way for Ontario to implement its proposed monopoly over cannabis sales. The extant industry is vibrant, well entrenched, and more efficient than the current legal medical industry. Transitioning that industry out of the shadows and into the light is frustrated by provincial monopolies that stifle competition and entrepreneurship. Cannabis culture supports the decision below and supports an approach or test for Section 121 that examines the effects of regulations, not simply the facial purpose. An inquiry that takes into consideration both the essence and purpose of the legislation as well as the practical effects allows for the most principled analysis. Failing to allow courts to inquire into the effects of legislation simply means that legislators seeking to enact interprovincial trade barriers need only be clever and careful in their drafting and runs contrary to the way this court approaches constitutional interpretation in other areas. Simply and exclusively looking to the purpose of legislation rather than considering the practical effects leads to what cannabis culture respectfully suggests is somewhat convoluted reasoning. The idea that a provincial liquor distribution branch that markets publicizes and generates significant revenues from the sale of alcohol is doing so to improve public health. Accordingly, cannabis culture supports the position of the respondent and the interveners that suggest various iterations of a test or an approach to analyzing legislation that probes the true nature of the enactment rather than simply its facial purpose and in this regard finds and supports the submissions of the respondent and the intervener Federal Express particularly convincing. Cannabis culture agrees with the intervener Alberta Small Brewers Association that retail provincial monopolies, whether existing liquor monopolies or coming cannabis monopolies, will often run afoul of the test being proposed because these monopolies create significant barriers to interprovincial trade by directly or indirectly imposing costs on out-of-province producers or by limiting those out-of-province producers' access to retail distribution within the province. As the intervener Federal Express points out, e-commerce transactions are a common feature of consumer life in Canada and the enactment at issue completely prohibits those transactions, which would be true for cannabis as well and the proposed uh, regulations in most provinces and territories. 
Cannabis culture supports Alberta's approach to alcohol, which does not impose a provincial monopoly and allows private retail distribution in combination with fair and equal access to this retail system by alcohol producers, irrespective of their geographic location within Canada. Cannabis culture also submits that provincial monopolies over retail distribution reduce consumer choice, prohibiting private dispensaries from participating in the illicit industry works contrary to the goal of federal legislation and contrary to a balanced approach to federalism and the free flow of trade across the country. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Gelowitz. Thank you, Chief Justice, members of the court. My name is Mark Gelowitz. I'm here with my colleague Robert Carson on behalf of the intervener, the Montreal Economic Institute. The Montreal Economic Institute supports the respondent's approach to Section uh, 121. And in our factum, we proposed uh, a test for determining whether Section 121 is engaged. And uh, the essence of that test uh, in our factum is now embodied in the protocol that Mr. Blue uh, took you to uh, and, and discussed in his submissions, so he saved me some time. But I'd like to address uh, a few of the concerns that have been expressed by members of the court about, first of all, the significance of the change that's being proposed, uh, the old cases that might have been decided differently, and the uncertainty for the future that would, be re that would result from the interpretation that's being proposed. When this court interprets the Constitution, it is, of course, the most important work you do. It's at the core of your jurisdiction. You must not approach that task with reluctance based on whether the correct interpretation of the Constitution might cause some trouble. It is this court's role to tell us what the Constitution means. It's our job to make it work. So in my submission, the court must not pull its punches in correcting the mistake that was made in Gold Seal, simply because it's a mistake that's been relied upon for a very long time. I'd also like to address the concern that the proposed protocol appears to add a lot of words to Section 121 and puts judges in the position of making policy or legislative choices. On the content of the protocol, particularly the higher purpose part of it, the Chief Justice correctly identified that it's largely based on the Oaks test. And it's worth remembering that the Oaks analysis itself was crafted by the courts as a way to apply the relatively simple language of Section 1 of the Charter. On the role of judges in applying that protocol, in my submission, there's nothing unusual about judges making decisions about whether a legislative purpose falls within constitutional boundaries. Of course, the first part of the Oaks test itself is an analysis of the sufficiency of a law's purpose in relation to uh, a constitutional protection. And that analysis of sufficient purpose, higher purpose, fits in well with the protocol that's being proposed. In 1981 and 1982, when the Constitution Act of the latter year was being considered and approved, everyone understood there would be limitations 
placed on the actions of government. And, and, and with the exception of one province, all governments agreed to that. It is difficult to conceive of Sir John A. Macdonald and the others contemplating that courts would sit in judgment on the adequacy of, 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 of time. They said, we will craft a no-go zone for both levels of government, and the courts will police it. Justice Rowe, I think you may, you may well be right about what was in the minds of what were then the fathers of Confederation. Uh, from where I stand, it's fortunate that we don't, we don't have a constitutional uh, method of interpretation that relies solely on original intent. You're not Justice Scalia, and this is not the United States of America. We have a living tree that you are charged with tending and, 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 and interpreting as it continues to grow. And that's why, in our constitutional framework, we need judges to make those kinds of decisions, particularly with respect to words that were written 150 years ago in circumstances where the framers could not have contemplated the world we live in. So the Montreal Economic Institute submits that we need a robust interpretation to bring Canada's approach to interprovincial trade into the modern world of international trade. And a byproduct of that decision will enhance the Canadian economy and increase prosperity for Canadians across the country. And Chief Justice, I've got seven seconds left, and I intend to use them. Um, <laughs> When I first walked these halls in 1989, you had recently been appointed as the rookie judge on the court with, as I, rec as I recall, the smallest office. Um, those days are gone, uh, but I'm honored to be here 28 years later to say that I and all of the men and women who have stood here wish you a long and happy retirement. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Maidment. <clears throat> Chief Justice, Justices, Section 134 of the Liquor Control Act has a very rare feature. And it means that its validity can be determined by this court on a relatively narrow question that does not require a constitutional revolution. The feature of Section 134 that is rare is that it prohibits the admission of goods based solely upon their place of origin. And that means that the question for this court is this. Can a legislature impose a boundary to the entry of goods based upon their origin in order to carry into effect a scheme that is otherwise within its constitutional mandate? And we say that while a legislature has a wide range of tools available to affect social policy, prohibiting the importation of goods based solely upon their place of origin is not one of them. On a progressive interpretation of Section 121, 
that tool is removed from their toolbox. And that is not inconsistent with the principle of exhaustiveness. This court said in same-sex reference that it recognizes, exhaustiveness recognizes, that anything can be legislated upon, but particulars may be limited by, for example, the Charter, and in my submission, Section 121. Now, to address Justice Brown's question regarding the notwithstanding provision yesterday, I say, Justice Brown, that it is not inconsistent with the notwithstanding provision to remove that tool from the legislature's toolbox. Because though the spheres of power in Section 91 are doubtless conferred notwithstanding anything in the Constitution, that does not mean that they can do anything they want to serve and exercise those powers. And Section 121 is necessary, notwithstanding the interplay between provincial powers and trade and commerce, Section 121 is necessary because in the unique circumstances of this case, the trade and commerce power has been used by the federal government to do the same thing the province has done. Both federal legislation and provincial legislation prohibit that boundary crossing. And so without Section 121, in this case, the trade and commerce power is of no utility. There's no interference with it because the federal government says the same thing. Now, if this court accepts that Justice Rand is correct, that what is prohibited is trade regulation in its essence and purpose related to a provincial boundary, then a court faced with a Section 121 challenge must consider the nature of the enactment. And here, elements of pith and substance are helpful because that doctrine uses the effects of the enactment to determine its nature. And as we know from submissions already said, the, this enactment has a profound effect upon e-commerce. It prohibits e-commerce in wine. The boundary is interposed to prevent the transaction based solely upon the place of origin. And that effect ought to concern this court because to paraphrase the marriage reference decision, you are obliged to adopt a progressive interpretation that accommodates and addresses the realities of modern life. Probably nobody in this courtroom has not ordered something online from some distant place and had it delivered to her door. We're not confined anymore in our taste to what the corner store has to offer. All of the fruits of human skill, ingenuity, and craftsmanship are at our doorstep because they are on our desktop. And the effect of Section 1434 tells us something about the purpose and essence of that provision. The essence and purpose of a provision with that effect cannot be unrelated to a provincial boundary because the fact that the goods originate outside the boundary is the only thing that engages that statute. I'm out of time and uh, I have more to say but uh, 
I'm prohibited. Thank, Thank you very you so much, much, Justices. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Brett. Good morning. Um, the Chamber and the Federation have intervened in this ap appeal to propose a more modern interpretation of Section 121. The interpretive principles that we put before the Court are based upon a comparative law analysis of other federations. Given the limited time available, my submissions will focus on two points. First, the policy reasons why other federations favor a broader interpretation. And second, uh, common interpretive principles that emerge from the comparative law analysis. Policy reasons in favor of a broader interpretation. There are two primary reasons. The first is a broader interpretation tends to eliminate interstate trade battles. And this country has seen a number of these. These kind of interprovincial trade disputes are enormously destructive of the common market. Second policy reason is to ensure that the parochial interests of the state legislatures do not prevail over the broader national or federal interest in a common market. This puts the uh, provinces hierarchically in under the government of Canada. Is that the architecture of our Constitution? Yes, and, and what I'm going to say, Justice Rowe, is that the advantage... Is it? Uh, is, is, are the provinces essentially subordinate to the national government, or are they sovereign within their own jurisdiction? They are, as defined and in accordance with the division of powers as set out 91-92, and as would be affected by Section 121. And I just want to respond quickly to what counsel for the Attorney General of Ontario argued in favor of the democratic principle. Because we have to look at what democratic majority are we looking at and what are the effects. So purely parochial interests can, in some circumstances, adversely affect a common market. For example, Ontario says all maple syrup uh, to be sold in Ontario has to be produced in Ontario. That responds to a local democratic majority in Ontario but it ignores democratic majorities in provinces like Quebec, which say, well, look, I've got an interest in, in marketing my maple syrup in Ontario. So while democratic principles work well when, with matters of purely local concern, they don't work well uh, when they're affecting the national common market. And national regulation of trade is far more accommodating of democratic principles in accordance with a national common market because it responds to the national interest through a national electorate. So a national maple syrup marketing board is much more acceptable because it's responding to a national democratic majority. Well, provinces can respond to purely local. There's lots of things. Nobody in nationally cares about whether Ontario, or Toronto builds a new subway or Ontario subsidizes the sub. There's lots of things that are purely local. But some things, as in you can't uh, import maple syrup into Ontario, affects the nation, affects Quebec, and the Quebec majority can't vote on it. That's why the national majorities can address these kind of national concerns. 
So the last point I want to deal with is the common interpretive principles. So the first point is that custom duties or tariffs on interstate commerce are prohibited in all jurisdictions. But all jurisdictions go far beyond that. And I would say Canada is an anomaly in saying that Section 121 only addresses custom tariffs. It makes no sense that you can't put custom tariffs in place, but you can absolutely prohibit the importation of goods. The second point is that all jurisdictions review both direct and indirect restrictions on interstate trade. Canada would be clearly out of step if it only reviewed purpose and not effects. And it's important to note that it is not possible to avoid considering whether the effect of provincial legislation uh, is discriminatory. Let me explain. If you're only going to look at the purpose of the legislation, the test would have to be an objective one. Because looking for the subjective intention of the legislature is difficult to discern. Any objective examination of the purpose of the legislation will of necessity have to look at the effects. If the effect of a piece of legislation is obvious, that will inform the purpose. And there's a good article on this issue um, relating to the Australian situation at footnote 14 of our factum. I'll leave the balance of my argument which relates to the type of proportionality uh, it's set out in my factum. Thank, Thank you, you, Mr. Brett. Mr. Bates. Chief Justice, Justices, the Consumers Council of Canada appreciates the opportunity to intervene because it identifies a consumer interest in an interpretation of Section 121 that gives effect to the submissions you have heard on the respondent's side in general. And we have in our factum in paragraph 16 offered a test that's in accordance with what you've already heard from counsel on this side, including Mr. Lavoie and others. And so I will maintain a narrow focus in these moments before you to ask you to consider comparatively that test with what was expressed by Justice Rand and has been commented upon, I think, by you, Chief Justice, as the, the, the Murphy test and, and whether the test being presented is Murphy 2.0. And so my point is just do a direct comparison of the elements of the proposed test to the inarticulated general elements of the existing so-called formulation. What is a higher purpose? We talk about it as though it can be ascertained. And if we consider the entire regulatory landscape of the nation, will we be going around identifying purposes and some are higher or not high enough? I, I fault the test, the concept, excuse me, of a higher purpose test for vagueness. Secondly, and in the same vein, the incidental effects concept that is associated with a higher purpose suffers as well from the same flaw of vagueness and subjectivity and uncertainty. So my submission is the narrow one that if you reach the stage that gold seal needs to be reconsidered, section 121 applies as well to non-tariff barriers and to the federal government, which is the extent the respondent side has asked you to go, you must do better than incidental effects of higher purposes and therefore a test with certain with with more 
uh, discreet and thoughtful ingredients must be formulated. My co-counsels in this side have advocated well, and I will not repeat all of what they've said about ingredients of this proposed test. We've, adjo we've joined in the presentation of them. My point is it's better than the vague test that is indicated in old jurisprudence. Those are my submissions. That brings us to reply, and uh, you have an extended time, as you know, if you need it. Thank you, Chief Justice. Good morning. Um, there are uh, perhaps two misconceptions this morning I'd like to address first. Um, the first one I take full credit for, um, Justice Muldaver <clears throat> uh, correctly indicated what I said yesterday in terms of higher purpose um, when I indicated the amount of money um, that the liquor corporation was making. But I connected that, I thought, and if I didn't, I was remiss, to the need to fulfill the provincial constitutional obligations. The, the money that is netted by the corporation, and this is on the record, in evidence, after expenses, paid employees, taxes, the, the net amount is $167 million. That money is paid on a daily basis, as it comes in, to the consolidated fund of the province. The evidence from the vice president of the corporation indicated where that money went and what it was used for. Schools, hospitals, um, policing, highways, all of those obligations that the provinces must fulfill. That, that was my point, and, and perhaps I was too quick in making the point. Um, but certainly I stand and hold with what I said about the importance of that stream of revenue to the province. The other misconception, um, and it's been referred to at least three times by the respondents this morning and implied, I think, by every other um, uh, intervener, if, if not indicated directly, is that Section 134 um, prohibits the importation of alcohol because Mr. Como wasn't allowed to bring it across the border as the circumstances are now before this court. But what's not realized, and I'm not sure if it is an improper reading by those who are uh, arguing that, but what's not realized is that 134 applies to every person in New Brunswick, whether you purchase liquor outside the province, as Mr. Como did, or inside the province. It must be purchased by the corporation. Simple. So that is not discriminatory. Certainly, it's not discriminatory at any level that this court would ever be concerned with, in my respectful submission. These are V121. What I heard this morning, with all due respect to my colleagues opposite, is that this court, for want of a better word, was assaulted 
by those imploring the court to become policymakers. That was implied, if not explicitly stated. And certainly, uh, the, um, uh, I believe it was the, the FedEx intervener, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but who's talking about the common market. And what is the common market in Canada? And words of, of it's, it's almost, um, there's no proper description. Those words aren't used in, in, the, um, uh, in the case law. There's never been a case, a constitutional case that I'm aware of, correct me if I'm wrong, that employs terms such as the common market and what is in the best interests of the common market. That has been a theme throughout this morning's argument. Canada has a federation unlike Australia. It, it's the 121 provision we have is not employed in Canada like it is in Australia or the United States. This case, this, this court, excuse me, has often referred to our federation as somewhat messy in a, in a sense. And it's messy not because it's illogical or it doesn't work, it's just that we have provinces with specific or regional interests. And, the, and <clears throat> at the time of Confederation, there was room built in for all of that messiness. And that's why Peter Hogg, as I quoted yesterday, has indicated it's up to the courts to figure out where we're going over the, um, the last 150 years. But no one is suggesting or, or has argued, nor has this court ever implied that it would be a policymaker in the sense that you're being called upon today. Um, I believe it was the BC wineries indicated that because of geography, they were being discriminated against because of lack of direct selling. That may be problematic for some. No doubt it is. But it's not a reason to upend Section 134 or, or legitimate provincial legislation which are directed at legitimate provincial purposes. Essentially, you seem to be saying that if the province is exercising its authority under Section 92, it should not be prevented from doing so by Section 121. That's correct. Absolutely. And if it's exercising its authority, then that legislation is not directed primarily or otherwise at a provincial boundary. That's implied in uh, what you've said, Justice Rowe. Section 121, as I indicated yesterday, is not a legislative provision. It has to be treated differently. What the respondents are suggesting is that it be treated similarly as 92 and 91 powers in the, um, in the tests that they are pro-offering. 
the Attorney General of New Brunswick is suggesting that test is the wrong word because it takes us down the road to, um, uh, to balance of power issues and the doctrine of division of powers, which this course, court is so familiar with. The test for 121, if you wish to call it a test, or the approach, has got to be simple, clear, straightforward, unambiguous. That's why I suggested yesterday that, and referred the court to paragraph 171 in Richardson, because in my respectful submission, 171 directed at a provincial boundary is just that. It has all of those characteristics. It's not going to mislead. It's not going to lead to a plethora of court case after court case trying to balance the interests of the province or the feds vis-a-vis -vis 121. It's not bringing an elephant into the room of division of power contests that have, we've seen. But it will if there is this test that Professor Lavoie uh, suggests is adopted, or indeed, my friend, uh, Mr. Blue. That, in my respectful opinion, will unseat the, um, the jurisprudence which has balanced very well provincial and federal regulations to the point where the tipping point has been reached several decades ago and the feds and the provinces realized we can't continue to fight. We're really one and the same family. The provisions of the Constitution Act 1867 were not intended to be conflictual. They were intended to be um, provisions which were supportive in the sense, uh, legislatively supportive one of the other. It didn't always work out that way, of course. But at some point, as I mentioned several decades ago, this country started to see much more cooperation between the feds and the problems, supported significantly by this court. Many of the problems complained about today by the respondents are not insignificant. For, I'm not suggesting they're insignificant. What I'm suggesting is that they're political for the most part. They are political. And I notice that no one has mentioned the internal trade agreements that have been going on since the early 90s and now the Canada Free Trade Agreement that was signed. Imperfect, absolutely, doesn't create the common market that's been spoken about, but a very good start down the road. I'm asking this court to let that go, let the process take its place, and there's no room for policy. Um, decision-making in this case or, or any other. Those are my comments, uh, subject to any questions. Thank Chief you. Justice, in the spirit of cooperative federalism, I would like to um, second the motion of <laughs> my friend. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. We are uh, going to reserve our decision in this case, which will come as no surprise to anyone. <laughs> We are not going to adjourn quite yet because I'm told by my colleague that she has something to say. If I can um, ask your indulgence uh, to take your minds away from the price of beer and ask you to think about the pricelessness of our retiring Chief Justice.
La dernière fois que la Cour a dit au revoir à un juge en chef, c'était il y a 18 ans, alors que nous nous apprêtons à le faire à nouveau pour la première fois, c'est à une femme que nous allons dire au revoir. Et quelle femme? Chief Justice, your colleagues have put their thoughts together and we have come up with some reasons to support our conclusion that you have been a spectacular Chief Justice. <laughs> But don't worry, we're unanimous. <laughs> Key A. Beverly McLaughlin. Let's do a contextual. Venons une analyse contextuelle et téléologique de son caractère véritable, conforme au droit international, au droit comparatif, à la primauté du droit et à la charte des libertés, en tenant compte de l'architecture de la Constitution et des principes non écrits en jeu dans une société libre et démocratique, en tenant compte également d'une bonne norme de contrôle. L'article 121 de la Constitution. Philosophe, professeur, avocate, avant de devenir juge à la Cour suprême à l'âge de 7 ans, presque immédiatement, elle est devenue euh, juge de, avec, en Colombie-Britannique. À 10 ans, elle est devenue juge à la Cour d'appel de cette province. Et euh, par la suite, on a Tapulté juge en chef. Elle a été pendant une vingtaine de minutes. Le temps qu'on la nomme à la Cour suprême du Canada, c'était il y a 28 ans. Une période extrêmement intéressante. Du doigt. There's no one area of law that she has not, on some level, created through uh, her judgments, Aboriginal law, family law, contracts, tort law criminal law, and many others. Further, each time that she has allowed for this area of law to move forward, she has brought it closer to the public, meaning that an increasing number of people have been able to understand that the law belongs to them. This leads us to her supreme passion, access to justice. It was absolutely inconceivable to her that the law, which is to be a common good in the service of the public, be inaccessible to a majority of people. She has written on this matter, discussed it, and established committees with a view to finding solutions. And she has managed to do this in such a way that this issue is at the very center today of the missions of legal professions. In other words, went far beyond the courtroom and led to a complete redefinition of the role of Chief Justice. From jurist extraordinaire, like her distinguished predecessors, Laskin, Dixon, and Lemaire, to judicial educator-in-chief as head of the National Judicial Institute, to judicial cheerleader of great Canadians-in-chief, as head of the Order of Canada, and to judicial chief of the judicial chiefs as head of the Canadian Judicial Council. Under her leadership, the court's reputation resonated nationally and internationally 
and attracted unprecedented public confidence and respect. She was, in other words, also our judicial ambassador in chief, a tireless protector and promoter of the institution inside and outside it, unflappably diplomatic inside and outside, and uniquely wise everywhere. She did everything in her power to help the judges do their job and to make them happy, and she succeeded brilliantly. And she did all of this. The most devoted and supportive husband in the whole world, Frank McArdle. Frank, you have no idea how many domestic quarrels in my house started with the phrase, Frank would never have done that. <laughs> Thank you for loving her so deeply and selflessly and giving her the joyful momentum to come to work every day so energetically and enthusiastically. We don't know how she did it. She seemed incapable of fatigue. Bev, or if you'll permit me to call you by your first name, Chief. <laughs> All judges, prior judges, members of staff, all justices and all those who have had the privilege of working with you over the years join to wish you health, happiness, and a very long and restful retirement. And writing books, and above all, a life without homework. <laughs> on behalf of all of your colleagues, on behalf of Canada, Thank you for your leadership yeah. and your inspiration. Thank you. I would now like to invite uh, our dear friend Owen Reese to say a few observations, make a few comments on behalf of the Council here present today. Chief Justice, Justices, Mr. McArdle, I know that I speak on behalf of all Council here today when I say that throughout your remarkable judicial career, you have personified justice. You have made an extraordinary contribution to the court and to the administration of justice in Canada. You have presided over the court and the Canadian judiciary with great wisdom, integrity, and grace. It has been a privilege for counsel to appear before you over the years. Know that you enjoy our deep respect and affection. We are profoundly grateful to you for your service to Canada. Au nom de tous mes collègues, je vous... On behalf of all my colleagues, I thank you. Wish you and Mr. McArdle the very best on your retirement from the court. Nous vous offrons nos meilleurs voeux pour l'avenir. Our best wishes for the future. Thank you.
Merci. Juge Bella. Thank you, Justice Bella. Mr. Reese, for these extremely generous words, I am extremely moved by the sentiments expressed. Generous. Uh, and um, almost reached the stand of the stage of challenging credibility. But <laughs> on, on, on this particular occasion, I'm prepared to accept the most credulous statements. <laughs> Merci beaucoup. Uh, I won't be long. Je ne dis pas trop. Je quitte la cour. I leave this court. I leave this institution. I leave my life as a judge with mixed emotions. As my husband likes to say. D'abord, un grand sens. First off, a great feeling of sadness. 28 years is quite a long time, <laughs> although it flew by. And I will miss the court. La cour va me manquer énormément. I will miss the court tremendously. The people whom I've had the privilege and pleasure of working with. I will miss the work itself. I will even miss the long nights of homework. <laughs> um, in fact, that may be the biggest adjustment that I have to face. What am I going to do with my evenings? Uh, but Frank assures me that he will be at my side to help solve that particular problem. Whatever lies ahead, I know that my time here will always be the centerpiece of my life. But that's just one side of the emotion. The other is great gratitude. Très grand reconnaissance for all the wonderful times I've had, the wonderful privileges I've enjoyed. And there's no way to say thank you. The judges with whom I've served over the years and this wonderful court we have now. People of great intellect, people of great wisdom, people who are devoted to the law, and in the service of each and every Canadian. I want to also say how much I appreciated the support of the staff of this institution. They've shown great dedication for decades, incomparable dedication. The best. And never was there a moment when I did not feel fully supported, totally uplifted, totally secure, because I knew that from the person who lets you in the door in the morning through to the brightest law clerk, they were all there to help me as a judge, to help the court be the best it could be. And that is remarkable. I want to thank the lawyers who have filled so many of my hours with great pleasure. 
you have always represented your clients with integrity and with skill and always with deep respect for this court and the role that it plays in our society. You have upheld us sometimes when we have been criticized. You have ensured that justice and the rule of law are still prized by Canadian women and men and children. I get wonderful cards from children talking about the justice system. Yesterday I got an envelope that big made out of a cardboard box. And I said, isn't that signed by 32 kids from a grade six classroom? It's the best Christmas card I've ever had. And it's people like you in the profession who have made it possible for Canadian children to express such admiration for our system of justice. And that brings me to thanking the Canadian public who are always behind us. We expect criticism, we often get it, and that's good in a democracy. Our decisions are there and open for comment and criticism. But what I have always felt is that the Canadian public generally supports its justice system and supports this court. And for that, I am enormously grateful. I want to thank my family, my, my son who isn't here, but who was 13 when I came and put up with mom as a judge. And I want to thank Frank. for everything he's done to make this possible. But you know, I saved the best for last. My greatest gratitude goes to having had the good fortune to have the life I've had to serve on this court. During this particular time when Canadian law has grown so greatly. Um, don't get your hopes up, respondents. That's a general <laughs> statement. <laughs> but it has been, as they say vernacularly, a terrific ride. I was made a judge of the trial court in 1981, the year before the charter was adopted. And we all wondered what, what lay ahead. Well, now we know. And I've had the enormous good fortune to be a judge during this time when Canadian law, I think, has gone from strength to strength, uh, when the Canadian justice system has emerged as a strong and potent force uh, for good in our society. It's been intellectually stimulating. It's been hugely challenging. And there's not been a day when I haven't thought I am the luckiest of people. 
Je me considère énormément privilégié. I feel privileged to have had this opportunity to serve the people of Canada over these nearly three decades. Thank you very much. Three more words, court is adjourned. <laughs> La cour adjourned.